Malachi chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously, each against his brother, so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and he has married the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning, because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness against you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. You've wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? Well, in a back-to-back church attendance drive over the next two Sundays here at the bridge, we're going to take up the issues of marriage and money. The Lord called His messenger Malachi to bring both issues to Israel. As we talked about in opening up the book of Malachi last week, this is a plain-spoken book. This is not the stuff of of intrigue, it's not the stuff of vision, it's not the stuff of revelation, save for the one revelation that God is going to send a messenger before Messiah would come. It is God speaking from His heart into the heart of His people, and some of these words are piercing to the heart. Since we're in Malachi, and since a godly perspective is so vital in the areas that we're about to deal with, marriage this morning and money next week, we will not shy away from them. And by the way, I'll I'll add this little note here for you gentlemen. God's primarily talking to us. And we need to hear it. What is the leading cause of divorce? In 2013, researchers at Kansas State University surveyed 4,500 couples as party of the study on the causes of divorce. They found that no matter how much a person makes, fights about money are the biggest contributors to divorce. The study also revealed that it takes a couple longer to recover from a fight about money. A little spider here. We haven't had spiders since the barn. I'm sorry, it's just heartwarming. Fights about money are the biggest contributors to divorce. The study also revealed that it takes a couple longer to recover from a fight about finances than any other fight. Apparently, couples use harsher language with each other, and the arguments tend to last longer. 
Well, again, next week we're going to deal with this. We're going to deal specifically with what I believe, what I am convinced is the biblical key to calming conflict over coinage. The biblical key. It is the number one thing. More than any seminar, more than any study course you might take, there is one thing. We'll get to it next week. But I'm convinced personally that money is not the primary cause of divorce. In 2013, also, the Huffington Post uh, contributor Kim Olver, who is a writer from utango.com, <laughs> described what she called five marriage mistakes that lead to divorce. And these are cheating, dishonesty, addictions, abuse, and finally, growing apart. Those aren't mistakes. There's no such thing as an accidental affair or unintentional deceit. Addictions, abuse, growing apart, even financial friction, these are all just symptomatic of what the Bible calls sin. The number one cause of divorce, brothers and sisters, in our country in any age, is sin. That's what drives it. That's where it comes from. Now you may say, well, but I never did. I didn't sin against. You may not have sinned against a spouse, but you have sinned. And as a matter of fact, we are, you are in good company because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the deal. I think part of dealing with stuff like marriage and divorce and, and what the scriptures has to say about it without shrinking down into our chairs is recognizing we are all sinners. And your sin may present itself differently than my sin, but we all are in desperate need of the grace of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when we recognize that, we can deal with any issue, because we all know we need His grace. Now, this article continues, by the way, by Kim Olver, Utango. She says, when people enter into a marriage, they have the expectation that their loved one is the person they know best, someone who will always have their back. But when things happen to shake that belief, it rocks the foundation of the relationship. She says, being able to trust, count on, and predict one's spouse is paramount to a healthy, happy relationship. (laughs) (laughs) Jeremiah 17, verse 9 says, the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And I'm here to tell you, our marital expectation ought to be, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, we need Jesus at the center of this thing, or it ain't going to work. Marriage flies in the face of our own innate selfishness. Marriage demands care and concern for another at times when you don't want to. Even in the best marriages. Cheryl and I were both working on different things yesterday, trying to get some things done. And on occasion, and this was funny to me, because at one point I asked her to do something. She said, you know, I'm really busy doing this. And about 20 minutes later, she asked me to do something. And I said, well, you know, I'm really busy doing this. <laughs> it's innate selfishness. I'm about me. And she's about her. And, and how, honestly, how any marriage works is miraculous. But without Jesus at the center of the relationship, it will not work according to design. Oh, you may hobble along. I know there are couples who remain married who, who don't know the Lord. But if you want it to truly work the way God intended, you've got to have Jesus right at the center. Marriage is a challenge. And again, it's a tough topic in the church today. It shouldn't be. 
But it is. All the affairs, the abuses, the divorces bring about great pain in the body of Christ. Let me read to you what Paul had to say about this. Over in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. And as a matter of fact, if you'd like to flip over there and then keep your finger in Malachi 2, that would be great. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. I begin in verse 21. You may see a break in the passage in the Scriptures. That's just what the translators did. That's not what the original writers did. That's not what Paul did. There's a break there between verse 21 and 22. And so often we pick up at verse 22, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. And the wives go, huh? What? As to the Lord? We need to start in verse 21 to understand what Paul is truly saying. And it begins there. Be subject one another to one another in the fear of Christ. The subjection, the submission is one to another. Husbands to wives, wives to husbands. It runs both ways, guys. Don't think we're off the hook. Wives then, verse 22, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body. Well, there it is right there, Rick. Husband is head of the wife. Listen, I have a head on my body and my head does not always make the best choices. My body follows, does, out of respect for my head, what my head tells my body to do. But my head can be pretty darn stupid. And only Christ as the head of the church is absolutely perfect in all He leads us to do. So husbands, don't think that because you're called the head, you got it all together. In fact, your position, I would say, is more precarious than your wife's. I think we as men need to step it up. We need to be a man... And live godly in our marriages. And treat our wives in godly ways. And love our kids as godly men. If we're truly to be the head and not the idiot. (laughs) Verse 24 says, But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. It's a show of respect. Husbands, love your wives. That's agapao, agape love. Unconditional. doesn't matter what she does. Love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. And by the way, the Word there is Rima, which is a spoken word, which kind of tells me, husbands, in our treatment of our wives, the words we speak to them are critical. Actually, unfortunately, the words we speak to our wives are far too critical. (laughs) We need to be gentle with our words. We need to think about what's coming out of our mouths toward the ladies in our households. Christ loved the church, cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. How does Christ speak to you? That's, guys, how we ought to speak to our wives. And it goes on, verse 27, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. Now stop right there. We'll come back there in a little bit. But a right relationship with Jesus Christ is the single key to a right relationship in marriage. You don't have a right relationship with Christ, you will not have a right relationship in your marriage. It's just not going to work right. If one is off, the other one is off too. I guarantee it. Now, 
Again, before we go further, listen, the point of all godly instruction, and please hear this, it's never about going backward. It is always about going forward. Which means as we talk about marriage and divorce, and some of you have had divorces in your past. Some of you, you have marriage that's on rocky ground right now. We're not talking about looking back and wallowing in the sin of the past. We're talking about starting today and going forward in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So anything that's behind you, any messes that you've been a part of, affairs, abuse, whatever it's it's been, that's got to be let go of so that you can go forward with Jesus. There needs to be forgiveness. Forgiveness of yourself, forgiveness between spouses. We are not called to sit and wallow in our past sin in our past failure, but to repent. What does Peter say about repentance? It's refreshing. It changes everything. Acts 3.19, Repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Then He may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke through or by the mouth of His holy prophets from ancient time. So as we look at this, what God says as He calls out Israel, calls out Judah on their messed up marriages, rather than sitting there thinking about how messed up your marriage is, how about this morning, repent and receive times of refreshing. Husbands forgiving wives, wives forgiving husbands, loving each other. We'll talk more about how we do this. This is not a judgment of failed marriages past. It is an encouragement for successful marriages going forward. Now back to Malachi. It was a sad state of affairs in Judah, and I use that pun intentionally. It was a sad state of affairs. There's a word for it Malachi uses, treachery, back in verse 10. Do we not all have one Father, he says? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, he uses the word again. And an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Malachi jumps in. He's been listening to God's judgment of the crooked priesthood. And like some of us sometimes, we start to hear the Lord go off in a certain direction, talk about a certain thing, especially bring up some sin issue, and we, and we go, Amen! <laughs> I'm part of this. I'm with, I'm with you, Lord. And so Malachi jumps in and he says, Yeah, yeah, crooked priesthood, but there's treachery in all of Judah. And that's why he starts speaking. Do we not all have one father? And in this brief little couple of verses, Malachi is interjecting, I believe by the Spirit of the Lord, but he is interjecting what he is seeing, and that is treachery in Judah. That word is important to understanding this passage. Treachery is bagad, bagad in the Hebrew, and it means deceitful unfaithfulness. Deceitful unfaithfulness. Why is that important? Because again, we're not talking about mistakes. We're not talking about unintentional errors. We're not talking about mishaps. We're talking about deceitful unfaithfulness and unfaithfulness that is a chosen and decided thing. And it's going on in Judah. The term brother here, where he says, why do we deal treacherously each against his brother? Understand that's a generic term. It means brother. It can also mean kindred. 
in, in this in this context, in the setting, I believe is applied to sisters. The kin of Judah. How can we deal treacherously against our fellowship, against our family, against our kindred? And those who are receiving the greatest blow of treachery are the women in Judah. This is upsetting the prophet. It's harm against the kindred women of Judah because the men were hooking up with the daughter of foreign gods. Or the daughters of foreign gods. What does that mean? Non-believers. Idolaters. Non-Jewish folk from the surrounding nations. And it was strictly forbidden by the Lord. He was very clear about this from the get-go with His people Israel. You are not to marry outside of the people of Israel. You are not to marry foreigners You're not to marry apart from. Now, it's different for us. He was speaking, dealing with specifically His people, Israel. So if you've married a foreigner, that's okay. Don't freak out. There's something specific going on here. God had chosen Israel to belong to Himself. And in Exodus 19, verse 5, He said, Now then, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, then you shall be My own possession among all the peoples. For the earth is Mine. You shall be to Me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And if you've been with us studying through these things, you understand this. God originally called all of Israel to be a holy nation. And that fell apart because of their sin. At Mount Sinai. They weren't even on the march to the promised land. They're in Mount, at Mount Sinai when it fell apart. And at that point, God said, okay, the nation are not going to be holy to me. I guess I'll have to call the tribe of Levi to be holy to me. And He called the priesthood to be the specific ones who would be set apart within His set-apart nation to try and help His nation be set apart to Him as He originally intended. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1. He's speaking to the people again. says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Megabites, flashlights, all the ites. (laughs) Seven nations, actually, he says, greater and stronger than you. When the Lord your God delivers them before you, and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, which would include marriage, and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and He will quickly destroy you. This was spoken before the people even came into the promised land. Fast forward, here we are now, 400 or so B.C., and the people have come back from Babylonian captivity. We're roughly a thousand years later, and exactly what Moses said would happen, has happened. And Malachi is having to speak the word of the Lord about this treachery. God said to His people, don't mix it up with pagans. Don't reach outside of the faith of the belief of Israel. And there is a connection for us as followers of Jesus Christ. Paul, tapping into this same mentality, 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. The King James Version rightly translates that, Do not be unequally yoked. 
unequally yoked. For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Paul says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them, I will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The calling of Israel to be peculiar to the Lord is a picture, an example of exactly what He desires for you. To be peculiar for the Lord. And some of you wives are going, well, good, because my husband's peculiar. (laughs) If you, by the way, happen to be a young, unmarried person who thinks that the idea of being unequally yoked is a good idea, a biblical idea, but doesn't necessarily apply to you, I say this with love, you're an idiot. Marriage binding believers and unbelievers are among the most painful that I have witnessed in 25 years of ministry. They are among the hardest. Oh, but I love him. It's going to be hard in 20 years when you're going to church and he's not. Oh, but I adore her. It's going to be really difficult when you are not able to be the savior of her life. And the Lord says, you you want to avoid the pitfalls? Marry someone at least who is like-hearted in faith. The law forbade marriage with the daughter of a foreign god, not because God Himself was bigoted or biased, but to protect His chosen people from idolatry, which was exactly where it was all going to go. And the Lord knew this. And I think of that one phrase I heard years ago, John Corson said, sin isn't bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. It's not that the Lord, you know, inadvertently just kind of comes up with things that we aren't to do. No, He knows they're harmful. He knows they're hurtful. He knows the carnage and the destruction that will be caused by sin. So He says, don't do it. Save yourself the pain. Pagan wives even messed up Israel's glorious King Solomon, who had over 700. I can't even fathom. I've told you before, I have trouble understanding one. Seven hundred! Not to mention concubines. I mean, yeah. First Kings chapter 11, verse 4 says, When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. That verse makes me wonder if we will see Solomon in heaven. I hope so. I think the end of the book of Ecclesiastes at least gives kind of a hopeful indication that maybe he did at least know the Lord still and did trust the Lord, though he had really taken off after his wives, gods, unequally yoked. Ezra chapter 9 verses 1 and 2 talks about the problem as well in and among the exiles. Nehemiah brings it up. Chapter 13 verses 25 through 27. They tell us that historically messed up marriages continued to plague Judah even after they returned from exile in Babylon. And Malachi saw all of this. And so he writes in verse 12, As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. What does that mean? This is a proverbial expression in the Hebrew. Everyone who awakes and who answers. Well, who awakes and who answers? Everyone. 
Everyone awakes. Everyone answers. It's a proverbial expression saying all people. That's what that means. And in addition to that, he says, and the one who offers the grain offering. That's the priest. What, what Malachi is saying is from the populace to the priesthood, may God cut off everybody who deals treacherously. From the common folk to the man in the robes, cut them off if they are treacherous. Malachi again is in tune with the Father's heart, but now the Lord takes this treachery to a more intimate and serious place. Verse 13. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with groaning, because He no longer regards the the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Now, it's uncertain who is being talked about here, to whom these tears belong. Obviously, someone's upset. And the altar is covered with the weeping of these people. Some say it's the priests because they're the ones who sacrifice at the altar. They're the ones who made the offerings. Maybe the priests were upset by what they saw going on in Israel. Problem is, as we just read about Wednesday night, I think the priests were too crooked to notice. They were messed up too. I don't believe the tears being talked about here belong to the priests. Others think these are the tears of the women of Judah. And my heart would be more inclined to that direction. The women who are cast aside by the men, driven out by divorce, left penniless in the situation, and that's possible. It could be referring to the tears of the women. Most likely, the tears here are the tears of the men who are blind to their sin and just can't figure out why God's not blessing them. And the Lord is, I think, raising the issue to the guys, gentlemen, do you think maybe the reason I'm not blessing you is because you are being brutal to your wives? Because you are not treating them the way I intend for you to treat them? And the men are bringing their offerings. Man, it's just not working. We're not being blessed. The land's not growing. We don't see the kingdom returning. It's not going well here, Lord. How come? For what reason? They say, and continuing in verse 14, because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. The Lord draws out here three words that I believe are intended to dredge up some emotion in us. Us guys especially. But I do believe this also can run both ways. Listen to how the Lord describes these wives. He he describes them, number one, jot this down, the wife of your youth. The wife of your youth. Cheryl is the wife of my youth. I was 21 years old when we got married. She was 21 years young. We were kids. And you 21 and 20, 20 year olds, don't, don't take offense at that. Hey, I'm 50 now. You're kids. That's 30 years back in my life. And we were young then. 
We didn't have a clue. We, th- we talked, we were talking yesterday because I knew I was going to be sharing this this morning and we were talking about all the things that we've gone through and the, the funny things that we've done and the mistakes that we've made and the challenges and, and what the Lord has taken us through across the years. And as we talk about that, guys, get this. When I look at my wife and I think that she's the wife of my youth, it does something to my heart instantly. It makes me instantly remember that little girl that I married, that I stole from Bill and Sharon. I look at her, and I don't see the wife with whom I've contended. I see the wife who I adored. And it raises that issue back in my heart. There is a tender longevity in that phrase, the wife of your youth. It's something our culture rejects outright. That is the joy and the comfort and the peace and the knowing of staying with a single person down through the years. And what's interesting is we see an increasing opposition to the idea of biblical marriage completely from one end to the other. The idea of one man and one woman becoming one flesh for life. Listen to where this is going. This is not coming from me. This is from the Lord. Listen to where marriage is is heading in our culture and in our world. 1 Timothy 4.1, the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience, as with a branding my iron, men who forbid marriage. Sometimes we, we skate right by that one. Just talking about how bad it's going to be in the end times. Don't miss that there is coming, I believe, an absolute casting out of marriage. A day when marriage is not only undermined, it's not allowed. Can you even fathom that? Can you think of that? A day when marriage is forbidden. You might say, well, that's crazy. It's already being redefined. The biblical standard of a man and a woman... How many states are caving in that traditional picture? Traditional godly marriage. It's being absolutely ravaged by a society or at least a government that rejects it. Actually, it's interesting. The majority still keep voting for it. It's the government that keeps overturning the will of the people. But let's not go there right now. We look sometimes at, at, at marriage... We look at what's happening with the breakdown of the traditional value of a man and a woman in in a single marriage, and we go, how can this be? And I think if we go all the way back to the beginning, we might realize that we ourselves have been complicit in the breakdown of this thing. The logical next step from where we are right now is just to ban marriage altogether. Forbid it as an archaic institution that is exclusive by design. For all the institutional challenges and battles, brothers, let's get personal. Have we forgotten the wife of our youth? There's another place that loving description is used. It's in Proverbs chapter 5, verse 18, that says, Let your fountain be blessed and and rejoice, rejoice in the wife of your youth. The Hebrew word fountain, we've seen recently, it's makor, and it means the wellspring. The source. Man, if you're struggling in your marriage, husband specifically, go back to the wellspring. Go back to the source 
and remember the wife of your youth. Some might say, well, we didn't marry young. It, It doesn't matter. Go back to the early young days of your marriage. When your marriage was young, even if you were not... But Rick, I, I'm, in a, I'm in a second marriage right now, so do I divorce and go back to the first one? When I hear that, I think that is just ridiculous. Go back to the beginning of the marriage you are in. Start here. But remember, guys, the wife of your youth, what drew you to her? Why would you marry her in the first place? What was the attraction? What was the draw? What was the excitement? What was the, the joy that was there? Married men, can you recall how you felt on the day of your wedding. How you felt toward her before the first fight. Before the loose words and the harm and the fouls and the hardness of heart began to set in. Do you remember how you felt about her? Remember the wife of your youth. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. The Lord truly set up marriage for a place of joy and passion. There should be this this wonder in it. Even a marriage, especially a marriage that has been 40, 50 years. What's remarkable to me as a 50 year old now is how vividly I remember being a teenager. And you couldn't have told me that even 10, 20 years ago. You don't get older and forget, you get older and the picture is more clear. It's like the years paint it more brilliantly. And I think about Cheryl as the wife of my youth, and I gotta tell you, it gives me butterflies. It really does. I look at her differently just by calling. I've been calling her that all weekend long. Hey, wife of my youth, you know. I need you to do something for me. (laughs) In Proverbs 5, it continues on after saying, Rejoice in the wife of your youth. The, the, The fountain. It says in verse 19, As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breasts satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? Whoa. Pastor Rick, I'm a little uncomfortable. This is church after all. And you just brought the pulpit into the bedroom. Oh yeah? Listen to the next verse. Proverbs 5.21 If we're already in the bedroom, check this one out. For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord and He watches all His paths. And married couples don't think for a moment that God is not with you in the bedroom. He is. Well, that's just creepy. No, it's wonderful. It's beautiful. It is intimate. And it is a reminder that even in the bedroom, I am to be a godly man. And my wife, a godly woman. And that it reflects God's intention for rejoicing in the wife of my youth. Hebrews 13 verse 4 says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all. The marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. And so one of the best ways to renew your marriage, to renew and rekindle a love that may seem dry or may seem hardened, is to recall the tenderness of the early days of your relationship. And to recognize the Lord's eyes are on every aspect of your marriage. Even when the doors are closed. The wife of your youth. Secondly, he refers to your companion. Your companion is the Hebrew word Havaret. 
And Havaret is only used here. It's used one time in the entire Hebrew Bible. Havaret, in that form. But it's taken from the word Haber, which means knit together. Unified. Your companion literally means she with whom you are knit together as one. Some of you have heard this before. Genesis 2.23, the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And I think because Adam saw her and went, Whoa, man. (laughs) For this reason... A man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, listen, and they shall become one flesh. The one flesh union. Your companion, she who is, who you are knit together with. And that word one flesh in Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 is echad. And echad means a plurality of oneness. And it's an amazing word because it's the same exact word that is used in Deuteronomy 6.4 which reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is a God. The Lord is one. When Adam refers to his wife as one with him, he uses the same word that God uses to describe the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's how tight our marriages are called to be. That's the kind of union that we are called into. Matthew 19, Jesus says that's the model for marriage. Jesus goes all the way back to the beginning, back to Genesis 2.24. He quotes it and He says, that's the deal. In other words, it's always been that way. It has never changed. That's God's pattern. That's His desire. Think about this, gentlemen. Who knows you most intimately? Ladies, who's with you at your best and your worst? Who sees it all? Who else in your life shares your heart, your mind, and your body? And if we only share two of the three, we are going to fail. If we share mind and body, but we will not share heart, we hold back. Husbands from our wives, wives from our husbands, we're going to have problems. If we only share body, and we don't share mind, and we don't share heart, we're going to have problems. If we share our minds, but not body and heart, we're going to have problems. All three of these things are aspects of who we are and what we are to share. One of the greatest lies of adultery begins like this. My wife just doesn't get me. She doesn't understand me. My wife doesn't, but she, this other woman, she gets me. She hears me. She understands me. And gentlemen, what I would say to you is that's because she doesn't know you. (laughs) The wife of your youth, she understands you all too well. And sometimes that's the problem. She knows what you're up to. She knows what you're thinking. My close-knit companion sees me behind closed doors and I ain't getting away with nothing. But this woman over here who so understands my heart, she doesn't know my heart. And I can fool her into thinking anything because she doesn't really know me. You see the difference between a long-term marriage where you are known and an affair where there is no... An affair is just playing pretend. That's all it is. It's a game. It is not love. It is a twisted game. And fooling around is just fooling yourself. 
the wife of your youth, your companion who knows you. And thirdly, he calls her, and this is important, your wife by covenant. Did you know that marriage is not, nor was it ever, a contractual agreement? You go down to the county, you sign the contract, and that whole way of thinking of marriage as a contract has kicked open the door to everything from prenuptial agreements, a devilish idea, by the way, and finally, to the legal dissolution of marriage. Legal? What does legality have to do with marriage? God never said, I want you to sign a contract. He said, I invite you to enter into a covenant. And a covenant can only be left by one way, till death do us part. The Bible is very clear. Where a covenant is, Hebrews 9.16, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. To get out of a covenant requires death. If there's not death... Then the covenant, God's mentality, God's thinking of a covenant, the covenant, it's binding. And it's, it's something that we have completely lost, even in the church. We have lost the idea that marriage is a covenant, we've gone to it as a contract that can be annulled or, or dissolved. But it's a covenant in God's eyes. Turn over to Matthew 19. Matthew 19, just a couple of books to the right, actually one book to the right. And listen to Jesus talk about this. I know there are those who, who say, and, and I would agree with this, Rick, isn't there a caveat to the covenant? I thought Jesus gave us a way out. Listen. Matthew 19, verse 3. Some Pharisees came to Jesus. <laughs> now when a sentence starts like that, you know there's going to be contention. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing Him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Now they thought it was. A wife could burn the toast, and He could send her out on her ear. And He answered and said to them, Well, have you not read that He who created them from the beginning, quote, made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but are one flesh. A cod, one flesh union. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Well, they said to him, Why did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Note his words, because of the hardness of your heart. You realize that the certificate of divorce that came with the law was because the people were so hard-hearted and sometimes pain in a marriage causes hearts to be so hard there is no fixing it. And so God did something in the Mosaic Law. He regulated divorce. He regulated it in such a way, folks, that if you go back and study this, such a way that the woman would be taken care of if the man cast her out. That she would have some protections. But that is not God's intention. I would throw it in the same category as slavery. God regulated slavery in the law. Does that mean slavery is okay? No. Absolutely not. But the people were engaged in it. So the Lord said, if you're going to do this, at least treat each other well. And at least every seven years, let people go home and be free. Trying to teach them what righteousness looked like, what righteousness really meant. So Jesus said, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it has not been this way. 
And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality, and the word is pornea, sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. It is not, my friends, and this is where it gets very serious. Marriage is not only a covenant between a man and a woman. It is a covenant between a man and a woman and God. I want to be part of this, the Lord says. And so we covenant together. I love doing believers' weddings. I love doing weddings for two who, the first thing they say when they come to me, and I've had this many times, listen, can you talk about Jesus in our ceremony? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In fact, I don't do ceremonies where I can't talk about Jesus. Because as I said earlier, He is the centerpiece of a marriage being successful in this world. But this covenant, this covenant idea, listen, in Proverbs 2, Solomon is warning against the adulteress. Ironically. And he says in Proverbs 2.16, this adulteress flatters with her words, verse 17, that leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant with her God. So from the beginning, marriage has been seen by the Lord as a covenant between man, woman, and God Himself. The three come together in a covenant relationship before God. For whom, by the way, faithfulness is not only important, it's His nature. And I love that because in that covenant relationship, when God is a part of it, when God is invited into it as He intends, His faithfulness begins to encourage our faithfulness. That husbands, be faithful to your wives as the Lord is faithful to you. Wives, be faithful to your husbands as the Lord is faithful to you. But I've been unfaithful, Rick. I'm not talking about the past. Remember that this morning. We are not looking back. The Lord doesn't draw us back to wallow. He draws us forward to walk. Go forward from today. Don't sit in the past or you will miss everything that the Lord is trying to teach us right now. Marriage is a covenant before God. Ezekiel 16, verse 59, Thus says the Lord God, I will also do with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath by breaking the covenant. Nevertheless, he says, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. Interesting. Wife of your youth, the days of your youth, the Lord remembering the covenant He made with Israel in the days of their youth. And I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. That's God's heart for marriage. A covenant that is lifelong till death do us part. God's desire is that marriage bear the weight and the value, not of a contract, but of a covenant. She is the wife of your youth. Remember that, gentlemen, with tenderness. She is your companion. And it is okay for her to call you on stuff because she knows you well. And she is the wife of the covenant. Now going on in verse 15. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit. Let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. Wow. Okay, hang on a second. Is God actually saying that nobody has dealt treacherously in their marriage who has a remnant of His Spirit? Is He saying that if you divorce your wife, if you're unfaithful to your wife, you no longer have the Holy Spirit? That's not what He's saying. You may not be listening to His Spirit, 
but it doesn't mean that he has removed his spirit. What does this mean? It is accepted that the first half of this verse is as hard to understand as the second half is easy to understand. That as verse 15 begins, there are different views, there are debates on how to interpret it. Let me just give you the right interpretation. (laughs) Seriously speaking, the most simple and most contextual view is that God is referring to the first union of oneness that is between Adam and Eve. Let me read it to you again and and understand this. Verse 15. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? That's tough to understand unless you're reading it in the King James. It's one of those places and this is why when I study and I would encourage you to do so, have a couple of Bibles open that you know really seek to be accurate. And the King James and the New American Standard Bible are, in my mind, the two best. And I will study those two side by side because oftentimes one will reveal what the other one is is murky with. Here's how it reads in the King James, and this is a literal, actual translation. And did he not make one? Yet he had the residue of the Spirit. And wherefore one? That he might seek a godly seed. So that totally clears it up, doesn't it? <laughs> In other words, listen. What I believe Malachi is saying here, what the Lord is saying through the prophet, is that God did not deal treacherously with Adam. Okay, even though in his creative power, after creating Eve, God still had spirit. He still had spirit to give. After creating Eve, he still had a remnant of spirit. That is, he could easily have created more wives for Adam. He could have created more options. He only created one. He brought Eve to Adam. He didn't bring Eve and Rebecca and Joanna. You know, he brought Eve. He stopped with Eve. And I know what you ladies say. That's because he finally got everything perfect. You know, (laughs) he stopped with Eve, one woman for one man to become one flesh for one life. And that was the original picture. Why did he do that? Listen, it says, uh, and what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Or literally, the Lord desired a godly offspring. So he created one man, one woman, brought them together as one flesh, that he might have a godly offspring. Ultimately, who's that? Jesus Christ. Because at the very beginning, the creation of man and then woman and putting them together to bear children was about subduing the earth with righteousness and ultimately that the godly seed would come through the line of man in Jesus, born of a virgin in Bethlehem. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. And that was the whole idea. So God starts the process out right at the beginning. It's you and me who've messed it up all along the way. And yet God still was able to bring a godly offspring. Charles Feinberg says polygamy and divorce are not conducive to nurturing children in the fear of God. And ultimately these practices were not helpful to obtain the godly seed in the stock of the promised Messiah. So continuing on the last half of verse 15, the Lord says, Take heed then to your spirit, and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. He repeats it again. Guard your heart, guys. Guard your motives. Guard your mind. Guard your eyes. 
Keep watch. He says, take heed that you don't deal treacherously. You will deal treacherously if you're not keeping an eye on things. If you're not taking heed, if you don't keep watch. And keep watch not just against sin itself, but against the subtle lure that draws you down that road. I love Psalm 101 for this. Psalm 101 verse 3, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will know no evil. I'm going to guard my eyes. And I believe it's incumbent upon every man and woman in marriage to guard our eyes. To not read books, watch movies, look at other people who might draw us, even in the slightest way, away from the love of the companion, the covenant marital companion to whom we've been, with whom we've been since our youth. Or since the days of our early marriage. Guard our eyes. Set a watch on the places you go. And if there are places that encourage unfaithfulness, don't go there. Keep guard over whom, with whom you associate. If there are people who will undermine the value of your marriage, don't hang out with them. And I'll say this, guys, avoid one-to-one time alone with the opposite sex whenever and however possible. Avoid that. For any reason. Well, but I have to work with her and we have to travel across the country together. Bad idea. Bad idea. Well, it's just the way it is. Set a guard. Billy Graham was once asked why he had never been unfaithful to his wife. Here's a man in ministry, and it's kind of rare these days, doesn't it seem? Here's a man, a very, very well-known celebrity preacher for decades, who has never been unfaithful to his wife. And he was asked, how? How's that possible? And Billy Graham's answer, I won't even get into an elevator alone with a woman. If I get off a plane at an airport to speak at a conference and they send a woman to pick me up, I ask them to go back and send somebody else. I will not be alone with a woman who is not my wife. That was Billy Graham's standard. Good standard. Healthy standard. (laughs) Philippians 4, 6 gives us an easy way to begin setting up our guard. Guys, you might think about this. Paul says, be anxious for nothing. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will what? Guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I'm having trouble with this whole... I I just feel like I'm being lured all the time. You need to be more in prayer. That's where you start, because that will set up a guard, both for your heart and for your mind both for your spirit and for your thought life. The more time you spend in prayer, the less comfortable you're going to be going to some of these places and doing some of these things that would draw us away from a healthy marriage. Now, brace yourselves for understanding. Verse 16. God says, For I hate divorce. I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. He doesn't say, listen, He doesn't say he hates the divorced. He says he hates divorce. And I think maybe we've mistranslated that, at least in our own hearts, in our own minds. I've been divorced, someone might say. God must just hate me. No! He hates what's happened. He hates the carnage that you've gone through. He hates the pain that this has caused you. 
He doesn't hate you. He hates divorce. Literally, the word there for divorce is shalak, and it means he hates the sending away. What a picture. God hates sending away. I hated sending my daughter away when she got married. That was difficult for me. Now, granted, that's a completely different context, but, but there goes Hannah. She got into the limo with Josiah, who ripped her off from me. <laughs> Thank you. Exactly. She, he stole her from all of us. You know what? They're going to be home at Christmas. I say we get all together, and when Josiah walks in, we just pound him. <laughs> they get in the limo, they drive off together, and that's it. And I hated sending her away. And that's the way the Lord views divorce. It's a sending away. And when you send away, there's going to be pain there. There's going to be heartache. It is not God's nature to send away. The great 20th century theologian Sting once once sang the song, If you love someone, set them free. No. No. If you love someone, stand with them. Nurture them, care for them, sacrifice yourself for them. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Do what you do, gentlemen, for her. God hates the sending away. Says the Lord, the God of Israel, and Him who covers His garment with wrong says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal, and again he says it, treacherously. The word wrong there, we have seen it before. It is translated wrong. It also means violence. It's the word Hamas. The one who covers his garment with Hamas in the Hebrew. Violence. Why does he use that word? Because divorce is a violent act. It truly is. It divides trust. It breaks hearts. It tears families apart. It is a violent thing. And what we need to understand, whether you've been through a divorce or not, it is not the Father's desire for you, the sending away. It's not what He wants. So take heed to your spirit that you don't deal treacherously. This this message, as I've said a few times now, is clearly directed mostly to men. And I think that's good. And I think it's right. And I know there are others, and I've had some conversations with some folks, some, some fellow pastors, who are like, you know, I just get tired of men always having to, you know, take the, the hit for everything. We should take the hit, guys. It is time for Christian men to man up and be the men that God has called us to be and be willing to truly be the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church, giving ourselves up for her. To really be a man of God and to step up and accept that calling. Now, women can just as easily be the perpetrator of problems in a marriage. So, ladies, you're not off the hook on this. But God recognizes the role of men. Why? Because ultimately, the message of marriage, the groom and his bride, it is ultimately that picture of Christ in the church. And God is calling us to act that out. Before the world, to act that out. For the husband... To act like Christ to his wife. And when another husband, a non-believer says, How come you're so good to your wife? Oh, because Christ has been so good to me. 
Wives, loving your husbands, respecting them, responding to them in the same way we as the church respond to Christ. When someone says to you as a wife, why do you submit to Him? Why are you so gentle with Him and so willing to accept His his call on things? And the wife can say, well, because that's the way I am with Jesus. That's my relationship with, with my Lord. It is a picture of Christ in the church. And back in Ephesians 5.31 Paul also quotes Adam, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, Paul says, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So all this marital counseling that Paul breaks into in Ephesians 5 is wonderful, it's good, but it's not about marriage, it's about Christ and the church. Which tells me that our marriages were originally designed by God as pictures of Christ and the church for the world to see. God is, He is the ultimate rabbi. He is the greatest teacher in all of history. And He uses everything around us to bring us to Him, to teach us about Him, not the least of which is our marriages. So I'll leave you with this this morning. Does your marriage reflect Christ and the church? And if you hear me ask that question and your head hangs down and you think, no, it does not, you have a choice. You can stay there with your head down and be pathetic. Or you can lift your head up to Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, our marriage has not reflected you, but we want it to. We invite you into this relationship to begin that process and show us how to be husband and wife like Christ and the church. I believe that mentality would radically change every single one of our marriages if we could think of ourselves as emulating in our marriage Jesus and His people, Christ and the church. It is an incarnational testimony, guys, to the tenderness of Christ giving Himself up for His bride. It is a living witness, ladies, to your joyful submission to a groom that gave Himself up for us. And as I said at the outset, God is not interested in us wallowing in past failures, but walking with Jesus, fresh and new, from where we are today and on forward. Let's stand up together. There is one more verse here. A countercultural message. And this whole thing is countercultural. And God calls it out. He points it out. He says in verse 17 of Malachi 2, You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, How have we wearied Him? In that you say, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delights in them. Or, Where is the God of justice? We live in a culture right now that calls good evil and evil good. We live in a culture that says, hey, if your marriage doesn't work out, just just divorce her, walk away, send her away, no big deal. You're still a good person just because it didn't work out with her. And God says, that just wearies me. And we live in a culture that says, where is God? Where is the just God? Is there a just God? Trying to throw out absolutes altogether. And God says, that just wears me out. We weary Him with words like that. God has called us to be faithful to each other and to come back to Him 
He doesn't send away. He invites in. He draws back. Just as Jesus said in Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So married or not this morning, we're going to sing this song. And as we sing, have the prayer team come up. Married or not, if you have never accepted the proposal of Jesus Christ, I invite you to accept Him this morning. And if there is trouble, maybe your marriage feels like it's failing, maybe it's time to repent and just bring it all back before the Lord. If you're broken, if you're hurting, if any of this was hard to hear, and you just need the tenderness of the Spirit, I invite you while we sing to come forward and to pray and receive the healing that God so desperately wants for all of us. Amen? Amen. Father, we give this time now to You. We hear Your words. In some cases, Father, they're encouraging. In other cases, they are difficult. But we accept this as the word of truth. Father, I pray for Your grace this morning over the fellowship, over our body, both this service and next service. Your grace for us to respond to You, to come to You, and to receive from You the strength, the encouragement, and the healing that You so desire. And we love You. We bless Your name. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Won't You come while we sing?